Welcome to the Christian Drummers Podcast, discussing the art of drumming to the glory of Almighty God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is a great time to be a drummer in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, as all things are being placed under his feet. Today on the podcast, I'm going to continue talking about dominion and drumming, specifically taking dominion over cultural forms. In our practical segment, we're going to talk about monitoring and how to hear one another when we play. And then continuing our study in the basics, we're going to talk about basic rhythm combinations, moving from one rhythm to another smoothly and keeping good time. So let's begin. Continuing in drumming and dominion, we're going to talk about spoiling Egypt. You know, when um, the Israelites left in the Exodus, they took a lot of Egypt's treasures with them. Those treasures would eventually be repurposed to build the tabernacle and to beautify it. If you are playing Christian concert music, or if you are leading music in the church, chances are that you are playing pretty much in a rock band. Some of y'all may be in a jazz or a country band, and I think that's pretty cool. But uh, for the most part, we're playing pop rock music, right? Now, most of you are probably not old enough to remember this, but that used to be a real problem for a lot of people, not just because they didn't like the style but that they thought the the forms themselves were inherently sinful. The beat, that repetitive beat, you know, and the the rebelliousness of the rock and roll sound and the guitars and everything. That was considered to be straight up evil and um, wrong for us to use. That sounds crazy to us now, but I want to explore the fact that they weren't altogether wrong. There's a right and a wrong way to do this. But I want to start by talking about the fact that cultural dominion is part of our calling to disciple the nations. And so that includes drumming and the things that we're going to play. So if we just talk about, or if we just start in the scriptures, the foundation for this kind of thinking is simply that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And Paul goes on to quote that when uh, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says that uh, you should eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for... Here's the quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So that, coupled with the fact that our Lord Jesus reigns from heaven over the entire earth, which he made for himself, and all his enemies are being placed under his feet, that means that everything in the earth belongs to him, 
And that means that everything that belongs to him is available for us because he's given it to us. And so that means that forms of music and art and really everything else are available for the use of the Christian so long as he's going to use it in a Christian way and reorient it towards the service of God and and or the edification of the church. So that means that whatever's not sinful in the world is good and we can take it and use it. I want to read to you something that um, my friend Kemper Crab hipped me to when he when I would play some um, Christmas concerts with him and he would talk about both things like our use of Christmas trees, but also the use of things like Arthurian imagery in some of the Christmas carols we would play and things like that. And this is a letter that Gregory the Great wrote to um, Augustine of Canterbury. He sent it through a servant named Melitus, so it's called the Epistle to Melitus. And it was written in 601 AD, and he was answering a question. See, Augustine was sent there by the church to basically evangelize the Angles. And it worked. He was converting a lot of people, but they were pagans, and they had these pagan temples and pagan festivals and things. So he wrote to Gregory saying, what do I do with all these temples and all these traditions? Um, The temple would probably be in the center of the town, so it wasn't like you you could just go burn it down or anything like that. So Gregory wrote to him, and and this is kind of long, but I'm going to read it to you. Howbeit, when Almighty God has led you to the most reverend Bishop Augustine, our brother, tell him what I have long been considering in my own mind concerning the matter of the English people, to wit, that the temples of the idols in that nation ought not to be destroyed, but let the idols that are in them be destroyed. Let water be consecrated and sprinkled in the said temples. Let altars be erected and relics placed there. For if those temples are well built, it is requisite that they be converted from the worship of devils to the service of the true God. That the nation, seeing that their temples are not destroyed, may remove error from their hearts, and knowing and adoring the true God, may the more freely resort to the places to which they have been accustomed." And because they are used to slaughter many oxen in sacrifice to devils, some solemnity must be given them in exchange for this, as that on the day of the dedication, or the nativities of the holy martyrs, whose relics are there deposited, they should build themselves huts of the boughs of trees about those churches which have been turned to that use from being temples, and celebrate the solemnity with religious feasting, and no more offer animals to the devil, but kill cattle and glorify God in their feast, and return thanks to the giver of all things for their abundance. To the end that, whilst some outward gratifications are retained, they may the more easily consent to the inward joys. For there is no doubt that it is impossible to cut off everything at once from their rude natures, because he who endeavors to ascend to the highest place rises by degrees or steps, and not by leaps." Thus the Lord made himself known to the people of Israel in Egypt, and yet he allowed them the use, in his own worship, of the sacrifices which they were wont to offer to the devil, commanding them in his sacrifice to kill animals, to the end that, with changed hearts, they might lay aside one part of the sacrifice, whilst they retained another. 
And although the animals were the same as those which they were wont to offer, they should offer them to the true God and not to idols, and thus they would no longer be the same sacrifices. This then, dearly beloved, it behooves you to communicate to our aforesaid brother that he, being placed where he is at present, may consider how he is to order all things. God preserve you in safety, most beloved son. So what Gregory was saying was simply, these are God's animals. This is God's world. Use that building. It's a good building. Clean it out and use it to worship him. Take the animals and use them for a feast to give thanks to him. The people are taking something that was being put to evil use and reorienting it towards the worship of Almighty God. And that's what we're going to do with music. You know, um, there aren't really, to my mind, many forms of music that are inherently sinful. But I think we can say that there are some. And that would be because they tell some kind of lie about God or about his creation. Um, Again, as I mentioned last time, um, aesthetics is a huge subject. But there is a fact that there is an aesthetic standard in the world because God is beautiful and he's objectively beautiful. And so that which conforms to his beauty and his ideas of beauty, that's true beauty. That which goes against it isn't. So anything that contradicts that standard, we can say is inherently bad. But I think that standard is much broader than most of us would assume. It doesn't just include the kind of music you like, right? But think, for example, about chance music or about uh, some kind of atonalism or serial music. The message there is that there is no true standard. There is no objective reality. There is no God who decides these things. There is no law. Um, It is to say that the world is governed by chance and not by God himself. And it is to go against the order of creation in which certain things actually do sound good just by virtue of that's how we're made. That's how the world's made. And um, that's the kind of thing that we need to conform to. Now, there's another angle to that of there are some things that have been so put to evil use that it's hard for people to dissociate in their mind that evil use. I would think of that in terms of things like um, some folkloric music from West Africa. In a lot of the religions there, demon possession is a real thing. And some of these rhythms, some of these drum calls are actually used to summon the demon who's going to possess the initiate. Well, as my friend pointed out to me when I discussed studying African rhythm, those are God's rhythms. You know, he owns sound waves and vibrations and and frequencies. But to somebody from that part of the world, they're going to hear that that kind of rhythm. They're going to hear those particular calls, especially, and that's what they're going to think of. And so um, it might be wise for the moment to forego using that in service of the church where 
people have those associations in their minds. Um, I also think about uh, how a lot of Eastern music, a lot of long Indian rags and those kind of compositions are very long and very cyclical, and they don't always climax and resolve the way a lot of Western music does. And the reason for that is because their worldview is such that that's what they're saying about the world. Now, in those kind of situations, though, that music isn't inherently evil. We may use the trappings of it, the structures of it, and reorient them and edit them so that we can use them in the service of the church. And I don't think, for example, talking about Indian classical music, I don't think, for example, your average Indian person is walking around thinking that that's talking about um, reincarnation and things like that when they listen to those things. It's just it grew out of that worldview, but it's not presenting that worldview, if, if you take my meaning. So maybe we would... Uh, bring those kind of things to a quicker resolution. Maybe we would uh, adapt it more towards um, a less cyclical approach to the composition. Those kind of things can happen. But those rhythms, for you and me, those rhythms are there for our use and, and for us to learn from because we have a lot to learn from them because really Western music is rhythmically pretty infantile. So we can learn that sophistication. Same thing about West African rhythms. Um, we've already, in a lot of ways, appropriated West African music because chances are your acoustic guitarist strums clave. Ba, 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 ba. And that comes from West Africa. That's a bell pattern. So, uh, you know, we, we've already grabbed some of those things and we have reoriented them towards the worship of the Lord. And that's fine. That's what we're actually kind of called to do is to take dominion over the earth and bring it under our Lord's feet. Now there's another form of, of using wisdom though when we talk about appropriating forms that has more to do with propriety than with um, good or evil. Douglas Wilson talks about how if you were to visit a church and the first hymn starts up and it's a John Philip Sousa march with uh, guys coming in with the sousaphone, bomb, 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 how ridiculous that would be. And uh, I like to joke around in rehearsals, especially with my friends at Houston's First Baptist Church. And um, very often what we'll do is if it's a song that we know pretty well or whatever, we're going over it an extra time. I'll play these wildly inappropriate fills, you know, just big, gigantic, super fast, tons of notes, you know, or a lot of times at the end of the song, me and Eric Nitzberg, my bass player friend, will turn things into circus polkas, you know, like, and we all know that's funny. We all get the joke. And why? Why is that funny? It's funny because we understand that it's completely inappropriate in the setting of a worship song, if we were to do it in a worship service, it would be hysterical because it's so irreverent. But you know, the Lord tells us that worship that is acceptable to him is that which is done with reverence and godly fear. So there may be some forms of music, I'm looking at you, EDM, that just because of the cultural associations that we have, are just ridiculous. 
you know, so if, if we play them in the church, if we play them in a church setting, whether it's in worship or maybe even in some concert settings, it's just so irreverent that it really doesn't lend itself to that particular use. It's not that it's sinful to use. It's not that it's inherently telling a lie about the world or anything. It's just that we've made certain associations that we're not rid of at this time. So um, I think we need to think about those things too. Now, that's a lot of heady talk. And, you know, what does this have to do with being a drummer? Well, most of us could stand to study a more diverse array of styles. Even those of us who've had a lot of education musically, we've basically come up playing rock, jazz, and Latin. And um, many of us haven't even spread out that much, mainly because we'll decide we don't like it, and so we don't really pay a lot of attention to it. Frankly, I'm that way with jazz, you know? (laughs) But uh, um, nonetheless, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And as we seek to increase our ability to serve God in the church, we need to increase our knowledge of what's out there and available to our use. So learning West African rhythms and learning classical Indian um, meter and some of the rhythms that they incorporate, um, Knowing what the tabla do, knowing what the djembe's like, knowing and what it is really like too, not in your acoustic set. Um, learning uh, Japanese daiko drumming, you know, uh, knowing about those things only adds to our vocabulary, but it also spreads the dominion of Christ into places where they may not worship Him, or at least worship Him very much, and we can take from those forms that which is good and reorient them towards the worship of God and, in a sense, redeem them. Now, that means that we have to cultivate what it says in Hebrews uh, the mature Christian has, which is the ability to discern between good and evil. And that means we have to study and we have to really understand um, to what end were these rhythms being used if we invoke that flavor, you know, with our use of them, do we make an association that we don't want to make in the church? Things like that. So um, think about that and think about, you know, where you're lacking maybe in your stylistic diversity. And are there any forms of music and drumming out there that you're interested in but just haven't checked out? And I also urge you, get over the fact that you may not like how it sounds and check out what's really going on behind it. And you might develop an appreciation for it, and you might not, but at least you'll know. So I know that was kind of an excursus from uh, what we were talking about last time, but just meditate on this a little bit, Um, meditate on how what you see in the culture around you isn't all of itself inherently evil. What may we take from it and how can we put that under the feet of Christ? And then next time, Lord willing, we'll start talking about how we put all these principles into practical use in our study of drumming, in our practicing, 
and in our performing. Okay, now bringing everything back down to a practical level, let's talk about monitors. Again, whether you're in a concert situation or whether you're in a worship leading situation, if you're going church to church, you're going to run into a lot of different kinds of monitoring. Um, Those of you who simply just play in more concert kind of bands, you may have a benefit here in that you're probably... Um, If you're touring or playing around like that, you're either carrying your own PA and monitor system or you at least have kind of a set of requirements that are met before you even, you know, agree to play anywhere. But for a lot of you who lead worship and um, either travel with a worship band or a worship leader or are individual mercenaries like me (laughs) and you you, uh, go from church to church, Man, you're going to run into a lot of different ways that we listen to one another or don't on stage, right? So you might show up at a church where the PA is simply, that's all there is. And you're going to listen to the band through the same speakers that the congregation is listening to the band through. You might have a couple of wedges on stage. You might have wedges at each you know, instrument station. Or you may have the luxury to which we've all become accustomed, hopefully, of having in-ear monitors, either being controlled by a mixer or by having your own individual mixer and being able to build your own uh, monitor mix. Well, you have to be able to deal with all these. And they are all going to present their own challenges. So I want to talk first about What must be present um, in all of those situations? Well, obviously the essentials are going to be that you're going to need to hear whatever is driving the rhythm. Now, if you're using in-ears, chances are what's driving the rhythm is a metronome. But if it's not just simply the click, you know, more often than not in the kind of worship music that we play, and in most kinds of rock and roll, uh, most kinds of CCM, I would say. Um, It's the acoustic guitar and the lead singer, who are usually the same guy, right? So you're going to need to hear that in order to be able to key off of it and lead the rhythm for the rest of the band. Um, From there, of course, the next next step in the food chain is going to be the bass player, because you need to lock in with him and have the same pattern going on the low end with the rhythm. And then from there, the guitars, the keyboards, etc., background vocals, any other frosting that's out there, loops or pads, though I usually don't keep those in my monitor. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and and then it's really taste at that point. And situations are going to dictate kind of that balance. For example, if I'm playing more choir uh, in, a, in a more choir and orchestra kind of situation, I want more piano because the piano is probably driving everything. Um, I would probably have less piano in a rock band situation because whoever's playing it is probably playing more keyboards and pads anyway. But you do want a clear mix of everyone. I would urge you, don't ever 
have somebody out of your mix unless for you know some reason they're a bad player or something like that but um I like to have a very clear mix to where I can hear what everyone is doing but more than anything I'm going to want either the click track or the acoustic guitarist and of course the lead vocal now talking about the click track those of you who are tied to a click you're going to want it to be the loudest thing of course so that you can lock with it and everybody can lock with you but be careful if you're using some kind of headphones or in-ears that you don't have it too loud because these awful, horrible digital clicks are usually constructed of a sound that cuts through everything on purpose. And um, that's the reason they use them. And it's really easy to crank it up so loud that you're really blowing your ears out and uh, kind of obliterating everybody else in the mix when you really don't need to because it'll cut through anyway. So, um, you know, there's that. Also, if you're in a situation where you're using wedges and um, you're in that kind of stage, you need to be um, more aware of your own volume so that you can hear without having to crank that thing up to 11 because then you're just adding to stage volume and all the junk in the room and then everything has to even keep getting louder and then it's just going to sound bad. Likewise, if you're in the very worst situation imaginable, which is that there are no monitors and there's simply some form of PA and that's how you're hearing the rest of the band, well, you've got a double whammy. The first thing is you're going to have to play quietly enough to where you can hear it. And the second is what you're hearing is delayed because chances are you're hearing it off the ceiling in the back wall. So your time is going to have to be rock solid and kind of ignoring what you're listening to. You're going to have to drive the rhythm more than the guitar does because he's going to be keying off you. Now again, talking about building a mix once we've got those essentials, I like to have everything clear enough to where I can tell you what everyone's playing. If we stopped in the middle of a song, I want to be able to tell you what every member of the band was doing. And that requires listening, too, as much as hearing. But um, again, if you have the luxury of having in-ears, most of those systems are panable. And for me, what I do is click the bass and the lead vocal are right up the middle. If there's only one acoustic, so is he. Electric guitars, um, we have two usually on stage with us, so I'll have them hard panned right and left. I'll put the piano player on one side kind of off-center, the keys on the other side off-center if I have that. And I like to spread background singers around as they are standing on the stage. That way, just if even with my eyes closed, I know where everyone is and I can tell you what they're doing. That's really important, and it's especially important if you're not tied to a click so that you can try to keep it all together. But I like to know what everyone's playing. Some of this requires education. As more and more churches move to in-ear systems, a lot of you may not have used them before, and there's a learning curve. I urge you to familiarize yourself with all the um, popular kinds of mixers that are out there. The Avioms, the Rollins, the Behringers. Um, my friend just got the MyMix, and uh, I had to, 
you know, fiddle around with that for a while when I played at his church. But uh, learn how those systems work. Also learn, um, learn the etiquette involved in dealing with somebody if they are controlling your mix. Um, a lot of ear systems still, and a lot of, well, every place that you're going to have wedges, the sound man, if there's not a full-on monitor man, the sound man is going to be determining that, right? Well, first of all, you don't want to be a jerk to him. Second of all, uh, you know, you don't want to overwhelm him with your demands either, and you don't want to be real picky. Just know what you need and um, kindly ask for it. Um, the way things are normally done in that kind of a situation is, you know, we'll start with the kick drum and the drummer plays and everyone raises their hand till they have as much as they need and then we move on to the snare and everybody raises their hand till they have as much as they need and so forth. Sometimes it's not done that way though, so you need to be able to say, you know, I need more of this in my mix. Um, don't use names unless the sound man really knows everybody, you know, for me to go, hey, I need more Steve. He may not know who Steve is. So electric guitar one, electric guitar two, kick, snare, tom one, tom two, acoustic, you know, that sort of thing. Lead vocal. Um, give them that. That way they can quickly accommodate your needs. Okay, and again, let, let's just finish this discussion by talking about working on your own ears so that you know how to listen to what you hear and listen for what you need to do the job. Now, moving on to our fundamentals of rhythm. Last time I talked about what I called the basic rhythms of popular forms of music. Subdividing the beat into one, two, three, four, six, and eight. And gaining control of them by um, playing throughout all the different limb pairs you can make with your hands and feet, right? Hopefully you practiced that really hard and, and uh, discovered oh, I tend to rush with this side, or something like that. Well, another place where people lose time is not simply just executing the same rhythm over and over or moving it between hands and feet, but when you move from one rhythm to another. And so a good way to get started working on that and feeling the spaces you know, accurately between rhythms is an example of... Uh, what Mike Mangini calls two numbers twice. And what that means is you're going to play two instances of one of these basic rhythms, and then you're going to play two of another. And I've got a worksheet, once again, downloadable on this podcast post on johnnydrums.com. And that worksheet is simply the basic rhythm combinations. And it's only a handful of them, but you could expand it from there. We're going to start by playing two quarter notes and then two sets of eighth notes. Counted one, two, three, and four, and. The next one is really tricky. We're going to play two sets of eighth notes and then two eighth note triplets. Counted one, and, two, and, three triplet. Four triplet, 
This one's really hard. Normally, people will rush the triplet or sometimes in rare cases swing the eighth notes, which is odd. But um, it's a real tricky feel to master. But it sounds like this. The next combination builds off that idea. We're going to play two instances of eighth note triplets and then two sets of four sixteenth notes counted. One triplet, two triplet, three E and a, four E and a. Sounds like this. And then we're going to play sixteenth notes and move to sextuplets counted one e and a, two e and a, three and trip and let and four and trip and let and i know that's a mouthful but you can do it it sounds like this and finally we're going to play sextuplets and 32nd notes and remember the 32nd notes move so fast we don't really have a syllable for each one so you would count one and trip and let and two and trip and let and three e and uh, four e and uh, but you'll be filling in between all of those notes right so that's pretty quick and it's sometimes hard to discern how accurate you are so we're going to do it slow but that sounds like this Now the first thing that I would have a student do with these is simply to do what we did with the basic rhythms before, which is to play them between all six of the limb pairs, both hands, both feet, your right side, your left side, and then crisscrossing right hand to left foot and left hand to right foot. At a very slow tempo, these are being played to you at 40, and even the quarter notes, you should play at 40 because of the... The idea is to not shortchange any of the spaces when you move from one rhythm to another. And sometimes at a slow tempo, that's really, really difficult. But it's exactly keeping those spaces that's going to make the music sit good and feel good. So we really want to increase our accuracy with that and learn how to, how to move from one rhythm to a faster rhythm without speeding up too much and to move back into a slower rhythm without slowing down too much and keeping everything sounding the way it's supposed to. Going back to eighth notes and triplets, you know, very often a student will play the triplet as if it's the first three sixteenth notes. So it'll go like one and two and three e and four e and it'll sound more like that than a triplet. Well, that means you're not playing what you intended to play. It's like using the wrong word. And uh, it's going to throw everybody off, especially if you're shifting into triplets. You know, eighth note triplets are a very effective fill idea in very slow, ballady, eighth note kind of music. But if you rush that, then, you know, you, you kind of wreck that feeling. So practice these and get comfortable with them. Notice which limbs or limb pairs you might need to repeat more than the others and, and kind of achieve some balance that way. And then see how it feels when you move from one rhythm to another 
as well as moving from one position to another and see how your time improves. I've found this to be really helpful no matter what your skill level is. So even if you've been playing for a long time, test yourself with this. Set your metronome to 40 or do this. Set your metronome to 20 and see how well you do. Okay, so have fun with that. Okay, so let's land this airplane. Um, I want to thank you again for listening. I know this is a really kind of odd little niche um, podcast, and if you're listening to it, I really appreciate the fact that you are. Um, Will you please consider sharing it with others, especially on iTunes? Um, Some of y'all have left some reviews, and that's been really helpful. It really does help me show up in the listings. Also, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, um, please repost and retweet when a new episode is available. That really helps out. I also want to hear from you. Several people have written, and that's been really cool to get that feedback. But if you listen and you like the podcast, or if you don't like the podcast, um, write to me and let me know. Johnny at johnnydrums.com. Um I want to know topic suggestions and uh, issues and concerns you have about playing that I can help with. Um, I also want to tell you that I'm setting up our first interview. And a friend of mine who's a great drummer and very well known is going to come on the program. And it's going to be really cool to learn his perspective and share it with you. But if you have any guest ideas, I would love to get those as well. Okay? Um, last time I shared that you should check out the Worship Lab podcast by Michael Brady and Sam Jones, and you should. I also would like to tell you that my friend Todd Wright, who's a brilliant songwriter, um, whose first record I was very privileged to play on, um, he started a very short podcast for people who write songs for corporate worship. Right now, he's only posting it on SoundCloud, so if you just look up Todd Wright, two Ds, W-R-I-G-H-T, you'll see his podcast. He's a great guy and a very deep thinker about what we do here leading worship in the church. There's also another podcast that's one of mine, and it's very, you think this is kind of out there, this is very esoteric, but there's a book, it's actually a tract written in the 1800s by a brilliant man, the Reverend John Williamson Nevin. And he wrote a tract called The Anxious Bench. In it, he was talking about dealing with revivalism and its fruits. Not revival, revivalism. And he predicted dang near all the weird things that you and I see going on in the church when we talk about worship leading and uh, all our road stories about the silly things that we see. Nevin's the guy that called it. Okay, so what I'm doing, since the book is public domain, I started a a podcast called The Anxious Bench, where all I'm doing is reading chapters out of that book. You need to, well, let me put it this way. If you lead worship in the church, you need to have read this book. If you are led in worship in the church, you need to have read this book. Your pastor needs to read this book. We all do. Okay, so uh, check that out if you're so inclined. I know it's kind of a weird um, thing to listen to somebody read you an old book from the 1800s, but that's the kind of guy I am. All right, my friends, 
Thanks for your patience. Thanks for playing along. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, our King, Grant us wisdom to discern good and evil as we labor to bring all things under subjection to you, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen.